this commentary was written, pastors knew their backs were against the wall. And what did they do? They determined to gather their churches together to pray. And out of these small prayer gatherings began the second great awakening in the United States. There's even one, there's even one testimony of a pastor. He's a Scottish pastor in Kentucky who, I was reading about him, it's really interesting. He, kind of his, his claim to fame um, before the second great awakening came to the West in Kentucky was he was so ugly that people came to preach, to watch him preach because, because he was so ugly. I don't know if that's a good mo you want to have but he was, he was i guess this really ugly dude i don't know but in the winter of 1799 he started holding prayer gatherings and pleading with members of his church to pray for their church or in their community he, he asked this he went to his to his to his um church and he said please pray with me start praying on saturday night at sunset, will you pray? Will you, com- will you commit to praying? And then on Sunday morning at sunrise, will you commit to praying with me? That's the fall of 1799. And then in the summer of that following year, the summer of the year 1800, something astounding happened in this little county in Kentucky. And in this little Kentucky county, which was known for its absolute and unashamed defiance of the law, in fact, history shows that there was only one court session. I don't know if that's, we have Judge Hagerty back there. I don't even know if that's like the correct way to say it, but there's only one, one court session held in five years. There's just lawlessness abounded. There was kind of like every man for himself. But after they prayed, the summer of 1800, they held a prayer gathering at that church. They were praying, 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 praying. Nothing special, but one prayer gathering. 11,000 people were drawn and came to salvation and asked to be baptized from that one little county alone. This pastor, he's completely overwhelmed, right? He's like, what do I do? There's 11,000 like 11, people coming through the doors of Providence. What do I do? So he starts writing all the pastors in the area saying, come, come help me, regardless of denomination or background. He's just saying, I need help. And out of these little prayer gatherings, again, the second great awakening started to spread to the West and many, the birth of many modern missions to Native Americans began through these little prayer gatherings. So friends, I share these testimonies because I want you to understand, I want you, I, I want you to see, I want you to get a feel for what's possible when a little ragtag group of messed up people begin to pray, right? And that's just one example. We could spend the next 45 minutes looking throughout history. You know, and what's really amazing to me about this, I was thinking as I, as I was studying for this and preparing, what's really amazing to this about me as I'm studying these stories is, you know, a lot of people, when they, when they study, you know, revival or the manifest presence of God, they'll look at the outcome. What I like to see is what were these people like before? Like, were they doing anything special? And in every single instance, we read, starting from the book of Acts, through all the, these testimonies and all these stories throughout history, you know what, these people, there's nothing special. There's no special preaching. There's no special conference. There's no special worship. These people were just gathering to pray and ask that Jesus would show up. Starting in the book of Acts, we could spend the rest of the day 
looking at examples like these. But as stirring as these testimonies are, what I want to look at this morning is the priority, the priority that we here at Providence place on prayer as a church family. I want to personalize this for myself. I want us to personalize this. I want us as a church family to own these these commands, own this invitation. You know, I did a quick study, and it was just a real quick study um, I did on my own, and I found 22 separate instances just in the New Testament alone. This is just in the New Testament from the teachings of Jesus, the Acts, and the Apostles. 22 separate times where we're exhorted corporately to pray together. So really, in reality, honestly, I could just stop right here and be like, you know, Scripture says to do this 22 times. Let's have a good day. All right, let's walk out of here, right? Like, like it's pretty... It's, it's right there. It's pretty black and white, right? If we want to get real honest with each other, you know, shouldn't those 22 exhortations be enough for us to say, yeah, let's just be obedient to God, right? That's what we want to be as a church. You know, if I go home to my kids and I, and I exhort them to do something 22 times, I would be just a little bit disappointed if they're like, man, they're still not getting this. They're not following through. So why is it any different with prayer? You know, when it comes to prayer, it's kind of like the IT guy in me, you know, the IT manager in me who's very, you know, algorithmic, very binary, yes or no, black and white, yes or no thinking. I just, you know, like I said, would kind of like to stop right here and just say, man, let's, like, let's just be obedient to Scripture together. But my heart's a little more complex than that, right? <laughs> Our hearts are a little more complex than that. So I want to look at some scripture um, that I hope will exhort us and encourage us this morning. But with that, let's, let's pray together. God, real simply, God, I ask that you would open up our eyes. God, like we sang um, that last song, like Victor led us in, <laughs> show us Christ this morning. God, would you show us your son, Jesus? Would you open up our eyes so that we see your invitation, the excellencies of Christ and the gospel this morning? Break our stony hearts. God, cause us, help us in our unbelief to know you. Stir our faith this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, if you guys could turn with me to 11, Luke eleven five. Please, Luke eleven five. I think we have it on the screen too. Thanks, Day. So Luke eleven five. Just real quick, you know the context of this, this is a very very familiar um, text, um, and I want to look at this more on a macro level. I don't want to get bogged down in the details here, but I want to look at this more of a macro level. So what we see here is um, we see Jesus. He's teaching on prayer, and. As he's teaching on prayer, he, he, the disciples come to him. They say, hey, they see Jesus teaching. They say, hey, Jesus, teach us how to pray. So he goes through the Lord's prayer. And then in the context of prayer, he says this to them. Luke 11, verse 5. He says this, and he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a jersey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his 
impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And now there's a ton in there to mine. I mean, we could spend all day again mining in detail from these 13 verses in Luke 15. But here again, I want to look at, I want us to see the heart of what Jesus is getting here, getting at here as he's teaching the disciples about prayer. So first we see Jesus, he lays out the template as to what we should pray, also knows, known as the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. We're all very familiar with that. Um, even people who, aren't, <laughs> uh, who, who don't go to church much, they even know, oh yeah, the Lord's Prayer, right? They grow up um, kind of memorizing that. But then, as Jesus continues to teach about prayer, he notes something that for some reason... I don't know why, but for some reason, either it's not taught or, I don't know, we're, we're, we just get slow in understanding it or we just forget about it. But in the context of prayer, remember, this is in the context of a teaching moment regarding how we should pray. Jesus teaches us to be persistent in prayer. And most of us know the story. Um, Jesus uses an example of persistence. Again, I want to just look at this very briefly. He tells a story about a man who goes to bed and he hears knocking on the door. It's his neighbor. He has friends coming over. It's late at night. In that culture, it's shameful not to have anything to present to them. And Jesus says, hey, because of the, not because of their friends, not because of their best friends or friends at all, this guy's going to get up and out of bed because of his neighbor's persistence. Because his neighbor is shamelessly persistent. Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says, ask, seek, knock, be shamelessly persistent in the way you pray. And then Jesus even takes it a step further and he tells his disciples why they can be shamelessly persistent. And here's the heart. This is the linchpin. This is really the climax of everything that Jesus is getting. And remember, this is all in the context of prayer, right? This is all on how we should pray, what we should pray, why we should pray. Here's the climax. Here's the climax. Jesus says, I want you to be reckless in your prayers. I want you to be bold. I want you to be shamelessly persistent. Why? Because you have a father in heaven who loves to give good gifts to you. But notice something. Notice something here. What specifically does Jesus say the father loves to give? Jesus gets very specific. What's the gift? Jesus says in verse 13, Jesus says, My father wants to give the Holy Spirit, 
My Father wants to give Himself. The Father wants to give Himself to us. And friends, this is what it's all about. This is the reward. This is the goal. This is why we can be shamelessly persistent in our prayers, because God wants to reveal himself to us. God wants to make himself known. We talk about the manifest presence of God. You know what? God wants to do this for us. God is happy to make himself known to us. God takes delight. He takes joy in showing himself and revealing himself to us. God wants to make himself known, and he's glad to do this for us. And we have to understand that God is glad to give us his spirit, or our motivation is going to be severely lacking. Things are going to get weird real quick if we don't understand that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later on. But I think we can, t- I think we can tell a lot about our functional theology by and why we can tell a lot about what we really believe about God, about the way we pray, by the way we pray. We can tell a lot about what we really believe, who God is, and his desires, his character, his attributes, by the way we pray. Prayer kind of exposes that in our hearts. Do we really believe we have a Father in heaven who's eager to give his Holy Spirit to us, who really wants to make himself known to us? So a story came to my mind as I thought about some of our, really, I'll call them our, our misconceptions of who God is, our misconceptions as one of the primary hindrances as to why prayer becomes such a drudgery to us, right? Because let's be honest, prayer a lot of times, it's just a drudgery, isn't it? Because of this incorrect view of God, prayer, a lot of times, it just feels like a chore. It feels like, kind of like working out, right? It's like one of those things where it's like, man, I know I should be doing this. Yes, the Bible says many times I should be doing this. I know it's good for me, but man, I don't want to do this. Like, man, this is hard to do. So about a year ago, um, I was tucking Camille in. My daughters love Camille stories. They're like, I can't wait till the Camille story. But so I was, I was tucking Camille in and um, every night, like I do with each of my girls, um, I'll pray and then they pray. So I just got done praying with Camille and then it was her turn to pray. And when it was her turn to pray, she turned to me or she looked at me. I'm sitting on my bed, on her bed next to her. And she looks at me pretty seriously. And she says, daddy, I don't want to pray anymore. You know, I was like, okay, I'm not going to force her to pray. And I'm kind of wondering what's going on. You know, maybe it's something trivial, like she wants water or she's trying to stall or something like that, or she's too tired. But so I ask her, I'm like, okay, Camille, so what's going on? How come you don't want to pray anymore? And she looked at me very matter-of-factly, and this is what I love about kids. It's like, there's not a lot you have to, you know, a lot you have to cut through to get to the heart of what's going on in their hearts, right? But... She looked at me very matter-of-factly, and she said, well, like she'd put some thought into this, which kind of surprised me, but she said, Daddy, you know, when I pray, the things that I pray for, they never happen. You know what? And you tell me, Daddy, that praying is like talking to God, but when I talk to God in prayer, it seems like he's not listening, so I just don't want to pray anymore. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, yikes, what do I do with that? You know, I'm kind of like, I'm left speechless for a little bit because I'm not sure 
how to respond to that. And in that moment, I'll be real vulnerable. I'll be real honest with you guys. In that moment, my heart was exposed too. And in that moment, I remember it very vividly. I even got a little upset with God and thinking, God, how could you let down this little girl that I'm trying to raise up to love you? And here's her conception about you. Here's what she believes about you. And in that moment, my heart was exposed because Camille's commentary was also my commentary. How many times have we had that internal conversation in our minds? What keeps us from being shamelessly persistent in prayer? Because if we want to get real honest with each other, theologically, all day long, I can tell you, and you can, you can tell me, you know what? We have a good, good father. We sing that song. It's on the radio. You know, Chris Tomlin, we have a good, good father. Two years, and I'm getting the words wrong, but you know the song, we have a good, good father. We can say all the right things, right? But functionally, is this really what pre- plays out? We can make bold theological confessions, but as a church family, do we really believe? I mean, do we really believe functionally that we have a Father in heaven who desires, who's glad to give himself to us? Do we really believe that when we give ourselves to this invitation, God will reveal his manifest presence to us in ways far beyond we can ask or imagine, just like he's done throughout history. You know, we can, I, we can look at the scripture, we can look at stories throughout history. Do we really believe it? And I know for me, and maybe for you, the pushback or the hindrance, it can sound something like this. It can sound something like this. Here's the commentary. Well, it seems like you're telling me to do something in order for God to act. It sounds like there's a catch here. It seems like you're telling me I need to earn something in order for God to act. God's sovereign, right? Seth, in case you forgot, I go to a sovereign grace church. I'm reformed. God's sovereign. God can do what he pleases. How many times has that gone through my mind? God, God will do what he does. You know, God will will what he wills. He doesn't really need my prayers. Or you know what, Seth, that sounds a little bit legalistic to me. Well, you know what, part of that thinking, it is correct. God doesn't need our prayers. In fact, you know what, without our prayers, God would be completely fine in and of himself. The triune God, he's going to be just okay without our prayers. I promise you that. God will be fine. He's going to be completely glorified without my prayers and with your, without your prayers. God will be God, and that's final. You're right. He doesn't. We're right. He doesn't need our prayers. However, prayer is the means God chooses to carry out his will. God's ordained that we actually get to participate in what he's doing here on earth. And as for legalism, you know, I'm not up here preaching that we need to do anything to earn something from God or to force God into a box so that he'll act. I'd say just the opposite. And if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the opposite on the opposite end of the spectrum. Because of our sin, the only thing we've earned is eternal death and separation from God in hell. But you know what? God comes along and he says, 
I'm going to give you my son. I'm going to give you my most treasured possession to die for you and to redeem you. And then God says, you know what? And that's not all. You know what? Will you join me in proclaiming and establishing my kingdom here on earth? That's what God does for us. Just think about that. The God of the universe, the one who breathes objects into creation, he wants to share himself with us and he wants us to participate with him via the means of prayer. It's something he's ordained for us to do. It's something he's commanded us to do. God sets the guidelines. He writes the map. He says, ask, seek, knock, be shamelessly persistent. I want to look at one more example from, from Scripture here in the next, just to close out here, these next 10, 15 minutes. I want to look at um, an example from Matthew fifteen twenty one, where we see this persistence and faith. So if you turn there with me, Matthew fifteen twenty one, I'll read this. So Matthew fifteen verse twenty one says this. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So quick context here of what's going on. Here we have a Canaanite woman, a woman part of a culture and a a people group, the Canaanites, who historically were very much at odds. There was a lot of animosity between the Canaanites and the Jews, the Israelites. To say that they didn't like each other would be a huge understatement. There are years, centuries of just of, of brewing um, discontentment and war between the two groups. So here we have this Canaanite woman, and what we know about her is she has a daughter who's severely oppressed by a demon, right? And she hears that Jesus is in her region, in her area where they live, and she's heard, she's heard about this Jewish man, Jesus. And even though she knows this Jewish man, Jesus, even though she knows he's Jewish, she's convinced that if Jesus will just come to her house and see her daughter, she knows that where the presence of Jesus is, the broken things are made new, that there's redemption. She knows that the impossible can happen where the presence of Jesus is. So what does she do? What does she do? Well, based on what she knows about Jesus, 
based on what she knows about the presence of Jesus, she goes after him, right? And what does she do? She's shameless about it. She cries out loud. She says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Help my daughter. And even note how as a Canaanite woman, she says, son of David. She calls Jesus by how he's known as a Jew. Son of David, David, have mercy on me. I know who you are. I know you're this Jewish man. Have mercy on me. Help my daughter. Show up. Come to my house. And Jesus' initial response, silence. That doesn't stop her, does it? She continues in her persistence and crying out, and she actually gets in front of Jesus, and she gets on her knees in front of Jesus. She kneels down, and she says, Lord, have mercy. Help me. Lord, help me. And Jesus' response, from our perspective, (laughs) kind of goes from bad to worse, doesn't it? I'm going to be honest. It's not really the way we expect Jesus to respond. Jesus responds to her with an analogy, and in verse 26, He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Essentially what Jesus is saying as he responds to her, he says, I've primarily come for the Israelites. Should I give to you what's primarily meant to them? And that sounds a little bit at first glance, at first blush, that sounds a little bit harsh, doesn't it? We're like, what? You know, I'm reading that. What's going on? But here's what I think is going on here. And tone and everything we know about Jesus is really is really key here. So when Jesus responds to her, I don't think Jesus is sitting here annoyed, maybe how we would often reply when we get annoyed with somebody, you know, who we think is maybe pestering us. I don't think Jesus feels pestered. Like maybe, you know, how, how we would tend to feel if we're at work or we're in the middle of something and somebody comes up and you're, or you're on your phone and you're trying to do something. You're just like, oh, just kind of go away. Like our kids, they have this, this, this thing that they they do a lot like the other day noelle's up in the in the bathroom in our in our room and one of our girls is down in the kitchen and just yelling just mom mommy mom mom mama mom mommy mom mom just for like 30 seconds straight you know just going on and i'm like noelle one of the girls wants you and she's like i can hear them this is a story of my life you know like it's not like that, and I say that jokingly, completely jokingly, but I don't think it's like Jesus is sitting there trying to blow her off in any way. Knowing what we know about the heart of Jesus, given his history of ministering to all sorts of people groups, I think Jesus knows exactly what's going on in this moment, and he knows exactly where he's taking this, exactly what he's going to do. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's drawing this woman out because there's something bigger going on here than just Jesus and this woman and her sick daughter. This is not a harsh or annoyed or bothered Jesus who's just like on his phone, just like, just get off my back, lady. Like, come on. Can't you see I'm in the middle of something? Just just get off my back. I think he turned to this woman and smiled And he gently responded in a way to her that would draw her out for the benefit of not necessarily her, but the benefit of those around her, for the benefit of his listeners, for the benefit of you and me who are going to be reading this 2,000 years later. Why? 
Because here's a woman who, yes, culturally and legally, she shouldn't be associating with Jesus. And everyone around there knew if Jesus did blow her off, that'd be totally fine in that culture. But Jesus could see exactly what he was going on, what was going on in her heart. He knows her faith. And for our benefit, he initially responds to her unexpectedly. Jesus isn't being unkind to this woman. Rather, in Jesus's kindness, in his foresight, and for our benefit, for the benefit of people like Camille, for your benefit, for my benefit, for people who begin to pray and receive unexpected results, and for people who have a misconception about God's desire to give himself to us, Jesus uses this Canaanite woman, a woman who is a nobody and a woman who really deserves nothing, And he draws her out. And he says, woman, great is your faith. Here's your reward. Here's your reward. Great is your faith. So providence, when it comes to praying corporately and individually, would God grant us the faith? (laughs) Would God grant us just even a fraction of the faith this Canaanite woman had, right? You were talking about the manifest presence of God. And what if we gathered to pray and pursue his presence, God's presence, like this Canaanite woman did, right? Saying, Jesus, have mercy on us. We have nothing without you. Jesus, just show up. Jesus, where you are, the broken things are made new. Jesus, where you are, there's redemption. Like, we don't need all this fancy stuff. We don't need a lot of programs. We don't need all this fluff. Jesus, just come. Like, just come here, and things will happen. Things will be okay. There will be a redemption. Jesus, just just show up. I know who I am, and I know who you are. We come, and we're asking. Jesus, just, just please come. You know, Chris has used the term upward and outward several times during the sermon series, right? Well, when we begin to pray as Jesus has called us to, our attitudes are going to begin to change. When we start praying, Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done, God's spirit is going to begin to work in us. We're going to start to look more like Jesus. We're going to desire holiness. We're going to be convicted of sin. We're going to continue to be drawn to love each other sacrificially. We're going to be drawn more and more to love our neighbors. It could even get really crazy, and we'd not even start loving our enemies. It could get that amazing. So Providence, this morning, as a church family, I want to exhort, I want to encourage you to pray. It's my desire that our prayers would be urged by this need, by our need, knowing, God, we need you. God, we know our standing before you, but God, we also know that this is your invitation. This is your doing. God, you've set the table for all of this to happen. Like, we can't, we can't stand here and be like, oh, I just I need to force God to make something. No, God has set the table. God has invited us into this. And you know what? We begin to pray like this. Here's the crazy part about this is I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what his presence coming, I don't know what that looks like. That's kind of the irony in all of this. 
like Chris, is, Chris preached a couple of months ago, you know, where two or more are gathered in his name, not in the name of providence, not in my name, not in your name, but where two or more are gathered in his name, they're his presences as well. This isn't some type of magic formula where we can say, man, if we just, you know, pray perfectly like this, then we're going to see God's presence come like this. And, you know, it's going to be revival like this. No, I don't know what it's going to look like. You know, if we, if we tried to make it into some formula or some conference or some, you know, set agenda, that, that would just bring glory to us. And you know what, guys? I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't want to get in the way of what God would want to do. I don't know what it's going to look like. But what I do know, <laughs> what I do know is we can point each other to Scripture What I do know is we can encourage one another to be obedient to Scripture. What I do know is we can exhort one another to show each other what Christ is like, to show each other that Christ actually desires, to remind each other that Christ actually desires to give himself to us, that God wants to give the Holy Spirit to us. It's something that he desires to do for us. Over the past four or five years, a small group of us that's grown significantly the last couple months, which has been encouraging, started out as a small group the last four or five years, has been gathering corporately and intentionally to pray that these very things would happen, that God would reveal himself to us, that God's manifest presence would be made known to us in very tangible ways, that God would make us desperate, like this Canaanite woman, that God would stir our faith, that his spirit would show up, that our, that our goal, that our prize would be, Jesus, your presence is here amongst us. And you know what? To be honest with you, during these last four or five years, it's been hard praying at times. You know, we gather the fourth Wednesday of every month inviting the church family to come, and it's been hard at times. Because at times, there's been maybe just five or six of us, and honestly, it would be a little discouraging. You know, I wouldn't describe my attitude during those times as um, shamelessly persistent. Maybe it would be more like blatantly discouraged, you know, just the opposite of that. But you know what? You know, it has been encouraging, and, you know, you look back on these things, and you can see what God's doing. Um, Hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? What I have been seeing is as we've prayed— you know what? His presence was there with us. His presence was there with us. As we stumbled over ourselves and very weakly asked God to build his church, it maybe wasn't what I expected. There was silence at times, but God has continued to build his church. God has continued to grow our faith. Just like the Canaanite woman, God has been drawing our hearts and stirring our faith. And as Dave has mentioned several times as he's invited our church family to pray, several times over the last couple months, I believe we are starting to see some of the fruit, some of those externals as to those seeds of prayer that were planted. You know, first of all, and you know, this, I'm just thinking about this as, as I'm talking right now. This is totally off the notes, but I'm just thinking, friend, you guys who've been our church for a while, these last eight months, it's a miracle that we're here this morning, isn't it? Eight months ago, that was eight months ago, 
there was some gross sin that was exposed. And for that not to just, I mean, that's, that honestly, that's kind of stuff that just destroys churches. Churches go away because of things like that. And for us to still be here this morning, that's a miracle in and of itself. But friends, even more so, we're starting to see what God's doing. We're seeing more and more, we're seeing sin exposed, especially (laughs) these last three, four, five, six months, we're seeing sin exposed. We're seeing more and more of a practical desire of holiness in our church family. We're seeing more and more people who are coming to the pastors, which is a bit overwhelming for us. (laughs) More and more people come to us and saying, you know what? I don't want the status quo anymore. You know, the way I've been living, I've just been settling. I want more of God's presence. And you know what, friends? I think that's a good start, but there's more. There's so much more. So my vision is is for us to, first of all, I want to invite you to pray, but I'd love to see our Wednesday evening prayer gatherings spill into every part of what we do as a church, spill into our community groups, spill into the way that we approach our weeks, spill into the way that we approach our Sunday mornings, that we're praying, that we're just like this Canaanite woman or like this, this pastor in Kentucky pleading, just saying, God, just show up. Like, we don't need anything else than your presence, really, right? Like, we see what's happened. We see what happens in in the New Testament. We see what's happened throughout history. We see what's happened, God, when your presence, your manifest presence is made known. And, like, there's not a lot of other things that have to happen for the broken to to become new, for there to be redemption, for there to be changed lives. God, just come and show up. That we'd start praying for our families, for one another, our co-workers. That this would become a part of who we are. That we'd be shamelessly persistent in the way we approach God. Knowing, friends, knowing that God wants to give himself to us. He wants to do this for us. God wants to reveal himself to us. And with that, I want to encourage you again. Dave mentioned it before. I want to encourage you to join our church family prayer gatherings the fourth Wednesday of each month. Just a real practical way of walking this out, right? This is a very practical thing. This this Wednesday just so happens. Honestly, we didn't really plan it that way. This fourth Wednesday just so happens to be our our monthly prayer gathering. Would you come and pray with us at 7 o'clock? Would you pray for these things with us? I don't know what it's going to look like. (laughs) That's the irony of this. I don't know what's going to happen, but let's just be obedient and see where the Holy Spirit wants to take this, right? Let's, Let's just be obedient to this. Would you consider these exhortations? Would you consider what Scripture teaches us? Would you consider the examples? Would you consider God's desire to reveal himself, himself to us here at Providence as we pray, as we join together in prayer? So with that, let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, God, I ask you very, God, very simply, God, we are so small. God, we're so weak. God, we can't do anything without you. 
God, anything we try to muster up in and of ourselves is, is worthless. But God, we just simply come here together as your people. God, as the, as the ones you've called to join in proclaiming and participating in your kingdom. God, would you grant us faith, please? God, would you please stir our hearts to approach you? God, would you please do away with any misconceptions? God, with any ways that we felt hurt or even, God, any, even any ways we've taken up offenses against you because of unanswered prayer, because we didn't see how you were working. Father God, would you please work and move amongst us? Stir our faith, God, just like this Canaanite woman. Stir our faith to shamelessly pursue you, God. God, would you do that for us? God, even in and of that, God, we, we can't do that by ourselves. We can't even muster the strength to do that. God, help us to just be obedient to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we've been talking a lot. You've heard me say a lot um, that God delights in giving himself to us. Well, communion, right? <laughs> it's, a good, it's a great way to end. Uh, it's a perfect way to end, um, end our morning together because as we come to the table, we're really doing two things. We're remembering and we're celebrating that God gave himself to us through his son, Jesus, that God loved us first. That's, that's the primary means in which God gave himself to us was through his son, Jesus. So why? So that we could even approach God. You see, without a sacrifice for sins, without a sacrifice for all the wrong that we've done, we have absolutely no right to approach God, let alone be in his presence. Without sacrifice, we enter the presence of God and our sins deserve judgment. We have no right to approach God, let alone have a relationship with him and approach him in prayer. But here's the good news. What did God do for us? While we were sinners... While we were separated from God, God gave us his son as the perfect sacrifice to rescue us from our sins. Why? So that we could know the Father, so that we could participate with the Father, so that we could receive his love and affection and experience his glory. So this morning, if you've ever received the gift of salvation, I want to invite you to the table. I want to invite you to remember and to celebrate what Jesus has done so you could receive this gift of salvation, so that you could participate in communion with God. And if you haven't responded to this invitation, if you're sitting here this morning and you've never responded to this invitation, would you consider this invitation? Would you consider what God has done, this table that he's prepared for you? his son that he's given you. I'd love to talk with you more about that. I know Dave, if you have questions about, about any of this, I know Dave would. I know Victor, he'd love to talk with you. If you are here with someone, we'd love to talk. We'd love to pray with you. So with that, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11:23. Paul writes this, 
as we're commanded to do, as we're exhorted to do. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, he took the bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper. He took the cup and he said this, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So during this first song, would you come to the table? Let's remember, let's celebrate how God has given himself to us.